0: This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics.
1: How do I determine how best to use the limited resources at my disposal? If the need outstrips our ability, how do we figure out what the best way is and most effective way is to use that ability that we have, those limited resources that are available?
2: On March 11th, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic, pointing to over the 118,000 cases of the coronavirus illness in over 110 countries and territories around the world, and the sustained risk of further global spread. To discuss some of the ethical issues regarding COVID-19, we are joined by Dr. Ken Iserson and Beckett Grimmels. Dr. Iserson is Professor Emeritus of Emergency Medicine at the University of Arizona, Medical Director Emeritus of the Southern Arizona Rescue Association, a supervisory physician with Arizona's Disaster Medical Assistance Team, and a member of the American Red Cross Disaster Response Team. Beckett Grimmels is the System Director of Ethics for Christus Health, based in Irving, Texas. Christus Health can be found in 60 U.S. cities and is comprised of 60 hospitals and long-term care facilities, as well as 175 clinics and outpatient centers. This episode was recorded Friday morning on March 20th. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Ken, I'd like to begin our conversation with you. What are we seeing today with the COVID-19 pandemic that links to our past, our history, with pandemics?
0: These are famous examples, so I, I don't have to uh, take it from my personal uh, experience. And we can go all the way back to recorded history. Fifth century, uh, the plague of Athens, uh, Physicians Thucydides, famous historian, said physicians died themselves the most thickly as they visited the sick most often. Uh, Unfortunately, some of our famous, famous predecessors, Galen, who basically uh, his work controlled medicine for a thousand years. When the Antonine Plague hit Rome, that could have been flu. It could have been uh, smallpox. uh, He fled and didn't look back, although he thought the populace was going to come and string him up. Uh, They didn't, but maybe they should have. Uh, In the 14th century, Europe The Black Death uh, occurred, and not all physicians stayed, but enough stayed to care for a good part of the population. And then we get into the American colonies. 1773, there was a massive yellow fever epidemic. And Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is one of the most famous physicians in the U.S., a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he wrote to his wife in the midst of treating patients, it would be as much your duty not to desert me in that situation as it is mine not to desert my patients. And then, of course, the one comparable one, uh, the 1918 flu uh, that killed millions and millions of people worldwide. Uh it was said that they stayed, they worked, and many died, physicians. Uh, so we've seen the response, and it varies uh, throughout the centuries. But in general, physicians did stay and they did treat. Uh, they knew the risks, and in some cases the risks were even more than what we might face with uh, COVID-19, because although in truth, they knew that they were infectious. They didn't know what the agents were. They didn't really know even how to protect themselves. Uh, And so they were were taking gigantic risks, but weighed the risks and decided to go for it.
2: Beckett, what are you seeing in practice?
1: Kevin, some of the issues are clinical in nature, and some of the issues are organizational in nature, and some of them Span the two areas from a clinical standpoint. A lot of it is simply how do I treat something that I don't know how to treat? We can support it, and there are, there's lots of anecdotes. So a lot of it is is how much weight do I give anecdotal evidence from you know some doctor talk to some doctor talk to some doctor in China or Italy or Philadelphia versus how do I weigh that with some of these studies that are coming out hot off the press every couple of days about you know, how these physicians have been caring for them. Some of it is if things become as bad as we hope they don't, but potentially could, how do I determine how best to use the limited resources at my disposal? If the need outstrips our ability, how do we figure out what the best way is and most effective way is to use that ability that we have, those limited resources that are available? I think there's also questions about, in general, a lack of comfort around changing the typical way we have end-of-life discussions um, and how we make medical decisions. Normally, in at least Western medicine, especially at least in the United States, the patient has the right to make their own decisions, at the very least refuse care if they want it, or determine the course of their care. And in a situation like this, the patient may have very limited ability to make some of those decisions. The surrogate may not necessarily be the one making that decision for the patient. It may be someone else because we don't have the ability to follow everyone's wishes. So the, the, the primary operative principle there from an ethical standpoint switches and changes. And sometimes it changes on a daily basis and that's hard to, to apply um, in, in person. Organizationally, there's questions kind of like how Ken was alluding to about the duty to care and the obligation that caregivers have to use their expertise and their skills to meet the needs of those around them. The power and ability that clinicians have through their training and their experience is is profound. And I think there's a great obligation that comes along with that to use that power for the good of those around them. And sometimes Sometimes to their own detriment. Sometimes that means to their own cost, whether that's the cost of a a nightlife or having a life in general through school or perhaps the cost of their own health in a case like this, as Ken mentioned historically. And so that that also brings up questions about staffing because we are going to have people who are out. We are going to have people who get sick, who aren't able to care for folks, who have other obligations like childcare. Um, They have no one to watch their children. So that brings up questions of people operating outside of what they're used to doing. You might have a hospitalist who's operating, uh, really running an a intensive care unit, which is, their, can they do it? Yes. Is that normally what they do? No. Um, I've seen some locales talking about using students or nursing students, medical students to do things that, you know, not that they can't do, but that they normally wouldn't do. Um, or perhaps some kind of temporary licensure granted to increase the staffing availabilities because we estimate that, Depending on on how severe it gets, we could lose anywhere from 30 to 60% of staff, and we're short-staffed already in healthcare. So those are kind of some of the clinical and organizational issues I think a lot of hospitals and and, and healthcare workers are facing right now.
0: I I totally agree that we're going to lose a portion of our uh, healthcare worker force, uh, either through disease or changes in their family uh, situation or just protective uh, quarantining uh using students uh that has been a major major issue at our medical center and the decision was made that medical students uh cannot uh any longer work on clinical rotations until this is over we're trying to protect the next generation of physicians uh initially Uh, They backed off and then they said, no, no students. uh, And that's it. They're trying to do alternative kinds of things. On the other hand, there are physicians and nurses and others uh, who have been sick or quarantined. Their family situation wouldn't allow it. Or like me, they're retired. And my suspicion is that that is... Those are groups that are going to be called back into the workforce. Uh, Certainly, the retired people are in a high risk uh, situation, so we'll probably be put in uh, less compromising uh, areas. But still, we need them for the workforce. One other thing, if I might uh, we constantly forget uh, after we talk about the doctors and the nurses. Uh, and maybe the medics and the advanced practitioners, we, f- we forget about everybody else that's necessary to make the facilities run. Uh, that includes uh, the housekeeping and the maintenance people, the computer people, uh, the security, the food service. If these people go down, we're lost. I haven't seen too many physicians uh, handling patient, bedridden patients with bedpans uh, very recently or cleaning uh, the toilets uh, or making the computers work. So I think we have to be really, really careful about our risk communication. That will move uh, more and more people, if it's done appropriately, to stay in the workforce or enter the workforce.
2: Beckett, as you prepare locally, what are the things you're focusing on? One of the most foundational is communication.
1: If we don't have very clear lines of communication, and more importantly, standard means of communication, then we don't know really what is happening, and we don't know what is occurring on the ground in all of our sites. We can't get a good big picture of what's going on. And then we can't really leverage our resources as a system very well. To shore up areas that might need more assistance, uh, and that could be, you know, transmitting healthcare workers from one to area to another. We do that often in hurricanes. Being where we are, we're all along the Gulf Coast and Texas, Louisiana. So we will very often send nurses one direction and patients the other to get them out of harm's way. We we can't do that if we don't have good communication. And here, the communication is needs to be so frequent and so rapid, just because the situation is changing so frequently. Um, it it's very essential to have a very clear set of a guideline of of who should be telling whom what and how. Another is just keeping a tab on what resources we have. Uh, How many beds do we have available? How many ICU beds do we have available? How many patients do we have in those beds who are either PUIs or patients uh, under investigation or confirmed cases? And that way we can again help figure out where we need to realign resources in order to best meet the needs of that local community. And then making sure we have as many resources available as possible. Um, Trying to acquire more PPE, trying to acquire more vents, trying to figure out how to maximize the use of those. I've heard, I'll defer to Ken on this a little bit, but I have heard people talking about ways to ventilate two, three, even four people with one ventilator, which in a normal situation we would never do but potentially might need to do here and all these different various engineering solutions to, to allow that to occur. And then the last thing I would say is trying to figure out a way that we can communicate to the broader effort to fight this pandemic. And I just had a conversation yesterday about ways that we could get samples of patients who test positive in our labs to research organizations and research teams trying to use this to use those samples to come up with a vaccine, come up with a treatment and test it to try and get us a way to 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 fight this better. Um, and that was a, it's a really kind of quick turnaround. It's, it may be the fastest clinical protocol we've ever written in Christus, to be honest. Um, but I think those are kind of the things that we're looking at. And there are hundreds of others. Um, we've got hundreds of folks working on this almost 24-7, um, but those are some of the ones that just jumped to mind to me.
0: I might add uh, that I actually have a book out there that was written directly to address how to improvise for pro- professionals to improvise equipment and procedures during disasters. It's called Improvised Medicine, Providing Care in Extreme Environments, the second edition, and it's by McGraw-Hill. I recommend that we always try to use the standard equipment when possible. But the problem is people are running out of this equipment and we really have to have some alternative instead of just throwing up our hands and saying there's no choice. Some of, uh, uh, some of the things that are likely to occur uh, because of the supply chains is the medications we use. Uh, We may run out of some of the common medications. Uh, The book describes some specifics and some places to go for alternative medications that are just as good, that will be available, that are less used. We're not talking about making your own meds. We're talking about uh, approved medicines, but can be used for other purposes, such as the common thing we use in the emergency department is local anesthetics. There are a dozen Different medications that we normally don't even think of uh, that are excellent uh, local anesthetics, and we could use uh, IV solutions. How to not necessarily how to make them, although it does talk about that. But you need your pharmacy, uh, your IV pharmacy involved. It's it's not a simple procedure. But instead, how to decrease the common use of and conserve IV fluids so that you'll have them uh, when you need them. Uh, uh, how to improvise uh, or use alternative medical uh, methods for to make uh, endotracheal tubes, uh, uh, chest tubes, uh, Foley catheters. Well, they won't be Foley, but they'll be catheters. Uh, how to diagnose fractures without x-rays. Generally using ultrasound, but also clinical means. uh, Just on and on and on. I mean, it covers every field, not just emergency medicine. It's uh, how to deal with post-traumatic stress disorders if you're not a psychiatrist. And I suspect we're going to see a lot of that. By the way, Uh, that's a whole other, a whole other issue.
2: Becca, you mentioned policy and protocol earlier. What are the types of issues that need to be addressed in policy?
1: in a severe pandemic or mass disaster situation, I think the most foundational goal is to save the most people we can and do the most good we can with what resources we have. And that's all of those efforts that Ken is just talking about is geared towards getting to that point. And unfortunately there may come a time where all of those improvisations are insufficient to meet that severe need, that great need that we have. And so then you have to choose how you how you do that. But I think that goal of doing the most good, not for the greatest number. I want to be really clear. We're not saying greatest good for greatest number. We're saying the most good that we can do, not to leave out the people who are in that that least number. Um, that that certainly should not be the goal. But um, the idea is really to do the most good that you can with what you have. And so you're looking at things like. PPE use and saying, do we really need it here? Or how can we increase that usage or decrease the usage um, and spread it out? You're looking at things like um, even the use of ventilators and and ECMO and trying to make sure that the people who receive those resources and that we use them for are going to receive the most benefit we can possibly provide to them. And so you're trying to narrow down and, and stratify patients by those who you likely have the most opportunity to help. And so even things like visitation, right? So you're trying to, at the same time as doing that, trying to stop or stem the spread of this and at least flatten that curve as much as you can. So we're looking at limiting visitors. Um, some places are stopping visitation entirely. Some places are limiting it to one. We're really limiting folks to, depending on what level of, of pandemic we're at, to patients to one visitor at a time, um, doing appropriate screening for them. Um, to make sure that they themselves are not sick and then also perhaps providing some exceptions for visitation for patients who are imminently dying and who we do not expect to survive much longer to allow family to be with them as much as, as reasonable during that time. Um, We're also looking at just other creative ways to support staff and allow people to work to the top of their license as much as possible. Um, and, and think of new creative ways of doing things because we might have family members be doing things that normally in a hospital setting, a nurse would do if a patient's at home, a family member could be trained to do it, but looking at ways to do some just in time training for them to, to do some, some basic care to again, reduce PPE usage or perhaps to, um, support caregivers who, who have more patients than they're used to caring for. One other thing we're looking at is ways to very quickly identify a patient's wishes and have goals of care conversations at the outset. Um, we should normally be doing that anytime someone is kind of getting into the realm of talking about intensive care, just to make sure that everyone's on the same page about what the patient does and does not want. But it's especially important here to do it quickly and timely because if the patient is is clear or the surrogate is clear that they would not want extenuated uh, intensive care, then we need to know that very quickly so that we can move on to those who perhaps would want it or could benefit from it and and put people in the areas where they can get the care that they need, that we can give them and that they want.
2: Ken, anything you would add to that with respect to policy or protocol-wise where attention needs to be? No, but I, I just reemphasize
0: uh, what Beckett said is that we're going to be doing a lot of things that we don't normally do. We're going to send patients home that we'd normally like to put in the hospital. We're going to put ICU patients uh, on the wards or even in the on the floor, out in the halls, uh, having patients uh, do things uh, in one situation. And again, I'm, I'm talking... Uh, about a third world country where it happens more commonly we ran out of ventilators. We know we're going to do that here. We're going to run out of ventilators and what we do or have done. And sometimes for a period of up to 48 hours is have a relative or a series of relatives bag the patient, the intubated patient uh, until we could get a ventilator available. And I've seen that in other countries where I've worked, I've worked on every continent and, uh, We just have to do those kind of of outside-of-the-box things to help, and I'm in total agreement, help the patients uh, that we'll do the best for, we'll do the most good for, and uh, it depends on what they want and their families want, but even then, uh, there are limits, and uh, certainly in emergency medicine and intensive care, uh, both groups are used to saying, no, we can't go that far. And that's on a normal uh, daily basis. Everybody does not get every possible medical intervention. That's going to be extended. Uh, and uh, as one of those old codgers that uh, may be in that group where uh, we're high risk, uh, it's a little scary, but. That's what's ethical.
1: I think the more people start to appreciate the gravity of what we could be facing, the more likely they are to think outside the box. A lot of the resistance to outside the box thinking and in, in transitioning from normal mode of life in a hospital to pandemic mode of life in a hospital has been the fact that it hasn't really hit us as hard as it has these other countries yet. And they haven't seen it firsthand and you can hear about it. You can read about it, but we're we're very emotional creatures. And so when you see it and you feel it personally, that's when you start to think about it and to force people to think outside the box before they're ready is, is hard to do. Um, some people just have a hard time picturing that. I'm seeing that uh, time and time again, as I talk to different of our ministries in, in different parts of the country. Um, those who are hit hardest are screaming at the others to say, get ready now because it's coming and it's just hard to get in there.
2: We talked earlier about um, how do we care for and support healthcare workers spiritually, morally in the face of this pandemic. Beckett, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
1: Just as much as individual clinicians have an obligation to use their expertise and training to help patients, I think health systems and hospitals have an obligation to use their expertise and resources to support those caregivers to allow them to do what we, we want them to do, what we expect them to do and hope they do. As part of that, we're developing what we're calling patient and family care teams, where when we have a patient who is not going to survive um, because of their severe illness or because of the lack of resources, we're going to provide a team that will help the family and the patient and the caregivers go through that. Um, as much as possible, as much as time allows. But having someone like a social worker, having someone like a chaplain, even an ethicist or an ethics consultant, talk to them and just debrief. It's not necessarily therapy, but it can be therapeutic. But I think focusing on supporting our caregivers is essential because they're going to become burned out very quickly by this. this healthcare itself is so far outside the normal human experience that, it, it takes a certain kind of person to work in healthcare. Not a, It's not for everyone. But this kind of experience is going to stretch that, that limit much more so. Um, and so if we don't care for our caregivers, there's, there's going to be not nearly enough of them to care for all of us. Um, I, and I think that we're seeing articles on moral distress in general anyway and about burnout and grief out and secondary traumatic stress disorder and compassion fatigue but all of those are going to be compounded exponentially over the next few weeks and few months and i think if we don't pay attention to that as a healthcare care system um, we're going to be much worse off than we otherwise would be i would follow up on that and just say if i haven't said enough even stronger we're failing to respect the dignity of our caregivers as human beings if we do not give them that emotional spiritual social support that they need
2: appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflections. Documents referenced in this episode can be found posted on our Ethics Lab page at missiononline.net. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.